Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching, Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. This is the first of a series of short interviews with a collaboration with an organization called Insight Seminars, organized by Glenn Wallace, a past guest of the show. Insight, by the way, is I-N-C-I-T-E, and not the usual Buddhist idea of insight. So it'll be interesting to find out what the project is up to. Our first guest is Ulrich Bayer. Thank you for coming on, Ulrich. Oh, thank you for having me on your podcast. Now, the first question I'm going to ask you is, how did you get involved with Insight? Well, I've known Glenn Wallace for, I think, 30 years, and we've been talking about philosophy, Buddhism, and poetry for about 30 years, and he also happens to be married to my sister, so he's my brother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there we go. That's a pretty solid connection the two of you uh, have, yes. yeah. <laughs> so, um, what's your view on these uh, seminars? What do you like about the format? Um, I think it's good to have a place where people who are not enrolled in formal programs but want to really go more deeply into a subject matter and have questions to think about things with somebody who's been spending a lot of time writing and thinking about it. And I like the seminar format where everybody can contribute and it's more of an exchange rather than a straight up lecture. So what's your professional background? So I'm a professor of comparative literature. I teach literature, continental philosophy, photography at New York University. I've been doing, and I'm a translator, a writer, a novelist, and I've been doing this for quite a while now. Okay, and you mentioned Buddhism back there. Are you? Do you see yourself as a Buddhist? Are you involved with Buddhism much? <laughs> no, I'm aspiring. Uh, I I do practice uh, Shaolin Kung Fu. For a long time now, so with a with a 36th generation monk, and he reminds me on a pr pretty much daily basis that I'm aspiring to be whatever I want to be. I'm not even close. To, I wouldn't call myself a Buddhist. I would call myself a practitioner. Okay, okay, that's fair. Yeah, who knows what the the final product would be anyway? If such a thing could exist, right? <laughs> exactly. That's that's what he's trying to warn me off. I yeah, think. yeah, 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 yeah. Sounds very good. Sounds very good. So, um, what questions drive your personal and professional inquiry? I've always been interested in how to listen to stories or voices that aren't really audible or easily heard. So, a lot of my work has been on poetry 
and art that gives voice to experience that we wouldn't normally perceive. And if you think about experience, it's things we live through, events, memories, etc., that we have access to. And then there's, of course, an entire layer of experience and existence that we don't have access to. And I'm interested in those experiences before they are labeled as mystical or transcendent or religious, that they're part of daily life. And I've always been interested in literature as giving us a thicker description, richer description of daily life, including all the wonderful, beautiful parts of life and all the difficult, painful parts as well. Oh, that's interesting. So you make this distinction then between sort of philosophical inquiry and then this inquiry carried out by artists, I guess, poets and writers. Where do you see the meeting point between those? What you just said is interesting. I really believe that literature, for instance, or art is a different and distinct way of knowing and being in the world. It's not a kind of pretty way of doing philosophy or an ornament to sociology. It's actually another way of being in the world, being present in the world. The meeting point is, for me, perhaps language and the way in which we can use language, not just as a medium to communicate, but actually language in a way that kind of, let's say, pierces or transpires or goes through us. So that's why I'm interested in poetry and philosophy, um, because philosophers use language to do philosophy and poets have to use language that we use every day in ordinary ways to do something that's extraordinary. So maybe this is the, the language could be the place where they meet. Yeah, that would make sense. So why this, why this topic, the topic that you're bringing to the seminar? As far as I've understood, you're looking at the work of, of Rilke, but you're also bringing in some Heidegger. So right. what's, what's the general topic and, and why do you think folks might be interested in participating in such a seminar? I think Rilke has a very important thing to teach us, which is to be present in daily life, as I said, quotidian routines, not flinch away from the pain of life, not elevated to a level of that it teaches us something that we wouldn't otherwise know, not sort of um, aggrandizing it. And I think right now a lot of people are kind of overwhelmed by what's happening in the world every day. You feel you want to either retreat, go move away from it, because it's just too much information, too many things that are maybe not in accordance with what you believe in. But they don't know where to go, because you don't want to move out of life. You want to go into it, let's say, go more deeply into life. So, And a lot of what we are experiencing is experience or mediated through language, the kind of onslaught of daily news. Heidegger was really interested in this, as many of the listeners will know. He was interested in gossip and idle talk and the news cycle. He had this in common with Adorno, with whom he had a lot in common, but would never have acknowledged having anything in common with, who's the kind of Marxist Frankfurt School philosopher. And Rilke had in common with them that he felt that daily experience, not in a derogatory sense, that daily experience is lesser, is actually all we have. This makes Rilke, let's say, a proto-existentialist. And Heidegger wouldn't have used that word either, but I would use those words because I think it gives us access into the work without having to be specialists. Okay, yeah, interesting. So what challenges do, do these topics present, the work of these people, um, to those that engage with it, and, and why? Well, Heidegger has very recondite language for non-native speakers, uh, so it's quite difficult sometimes to get through. And 
It's not just difficult to get through. It's also very difficult concepts. Rilke, I think, is a fairly accessible poet, actually. A lot of people know Letters to a Young Poet, which is kind of the gateway drug to Rilke. You sort of go in with your 10 letters written to an adolescent, and then you find yourself 30 years later on the other side still reading Rilke. Um, so there is a challenge to get acquainted with a specialized vocabulary like all philosophy and to not translate it too readily into something like existentialism or the tropes. So we know the differences between Heidegger and Sartre, who wrote, you know, Heidegger wrote being in time, Sartre wrote being in nothingness, kind of an informal response. Heidegger did not like or agree with that. So what does he mean by existence that the existentialists missed? That's a complicated thing. What does he mean by being that doesn't isn't just daily being the way things are? So even to open up those terms, I think, is not as easy as one would suspect. And why do you think that is in general, though? Is it just because we, we have very sort of socially constructed ideas about what it means to be in the world? No, or is I think... it a case that we just don't question that assumption too much or not enough? I think, first of all, we are distracted by the world all the time. You could probably say this in kind of neurologically because of perception. We have to filter out lots of things that are not important right now to get from here to there, walking on the sidewalk. You can't pay attention to everything. But we are distracted in a weird way by the world and as human beings by ourselves. We are lost in our heads and our thoughts, let's say. The philosopher Kant, 200 years before Heidegger said, he said, it's cowardice and ignorance. Foulheit, foulheit and feikheit. He said that keeps us from thinking. We're too, we're lazy because it's hard. If you think about everything you're going to do in the next five minutes, you won't be doing it because it's too hard. We're too much in our head, let's say. And you're also afraid because you may discover you're not doing the thing you really want to do or should be doing. So you're going to keep on doing things by routine. So we hesitate to think, and I think that's protective and reasonable, uh, but we're also missing, of course, a, a dimension of life that we ought to have access to. Mm -hmm. When you uh, shared all those words from Kant, it made me think of a sort of uh, motivational speaker that you might find these days. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Right? exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I have never hesitated to buy a new age or motivational or self-help book on a shelf because they usually just distill philosophy and a lot of them are <laughs> quite smart. So. Yeah, and yeah. that's actually an interesting observation that they share. So the most banal, trivial advice is found in the deepest philosophy. Obviously, we have a kind of discipline of academic philosophy today that does something very different, and they do not think they give you advice. They are doing analytic philosophy that's an entirely different language game, and let's say that doesn't engage with the world in the same way. Hmm. Okay, so what will people get out of an active exploration of these topics then, whether they come to this seminar or just you know get more curious about the work of Heidegger or Rilke? They'll come out probably not feeling more happy, but perhaps a bit more aware of what it would mean to have more access to being happy. There's something I'm really interested in is Rilke kind of admonishes and exhorts us all the time to not flinch away from pain. And he says, you have to live through pain back into life. I'm really interested in this quote because he is a was born a Catholic abandons Catholicism, does not believe in religion, does not believe in big ideologies like communism, socialism, fascism. He says, you have to make sense of the world for yourself. So people may come away with a little bit more courage to kind of face the things that are difficult and also have some language, which I think is quite important. Uh, I do think poetry gives you language, like in a sense of a gift, it's actually a present. And you may have a formulation, a phrase, a poem, a line that captures, ironically and strangely, what you already suspected about yourself but couldn't quite put into words. So it's 
you may walk away having a bit more of an understanding, but also having a bit a better capacity to express what you're understanding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's interesting. The point you said about real care uh, seems to be a sort of honoring of the individual and their ability to actually come to know their experience. Because we've got a guest coming up soon who's going to be critiquing neoliberalism. And one of the strong, let's say one of the strongest areas in society critiquing neoliberalism um, tends towards a sort of social view of the individual that's constructed in the world through social forces. And it often seems at odds with the idea of the individual, which gets marginalized. And, you know, the sort of gross manifestation of this is, is, is identity politics, whether on the right or the left. Do you think I mean, you know, this is an off the, off the sort of top of my head question, but do you think Real K might offer some sense of reconnecting to a form of individualism that, that has value and that could engage critically with something like neoliberalism and the, the sort of collective pain and challenges that we're facing at present? Yes, I think what you named, there's a great danger, of course, in elevating one's subjectivity because it will have absolute authority over everything. If my story and my truth is something you can't understand that cuts me off from and it gives you me enormous power, I can build an ideology around it that excludes you. There's a kind of narcissism that's a risk. There's a kind of identity politics, as you call it. Rilke is very suspicious of these things, but like a Buddhist says, well, because there is no essence, no center, no grounding in the self. So in some ways you open yourself up and their language comes in again. We are social beings with and through language and language also goes through us. So calling yourself a name, giving yourself a name and identity, having others accept that he finds maybe a path to think of identity as connected, not cut off, but also not kind of given yourself over to a social movement, which I guess your guest would call neoliberalism. So is there a way to come up with what I would call in this vocabulary of Heidegger and Wilke an authentic language for the self? That's not disconnected, narcissistic, isolated, identity politics driven, but also not kind of collective in the worst sense of the 20th century movements or today's neoliberalism. Apart from Heidegger and Rilke themselves, which figures and texts have been key in exploring these topics? So there's a nice and strange text by the political thinker Hannah Arendt, so who was Heidegger's student and actually wrote her first formal essay on Rilke in 1930, a very strange essay. So she was very interested and moved by this. And then Gilles Deleuze, the French philosopher sort of in the late 60s, who invents this idea of minor literature, literature kind of being a counterforce to these dominant previous notions. He's also interested in Rilke at some point. They're interested especially in, the, in this category of being outside, let's say stepping out of a system. Like if your next guest is saying, how do you stay out of the neoliberal system if you're, you know, we are participating in it by default, right? Even resistance is participation. So Deleuze accesses Rilke there. So that's been important for me. And so, and Rilke is the poet who most philosophers really were drawn to Husserl and Heidegger read Rilke, Marlene Dietrich, also a philosopher, <laughs> very famously <laughs> loved Rilke. But I'm interested in, let's say, the continental tradition from Heidegger through Foucault to Deleuze, um, Jacques Derrida, the, these people I studied with. I ultimately was very fortunate. I studied with Jacques Derrida and Jean-Francois Lyotard very closely, who I believe actually give you a way of thinking of an alternative subjectivity that's not neoliberal and not and sort of endowed with these kind of capacity for mass movements. Okay, okay, interesting. So will you be exploring the work of these figures in the workshop or working primarily with uh, the original texts? We're reading both. We're reading um, original texts by Heidegger and by Rilke. I'm putting them next to each other and would treat each of them 
on the same plane. So to, here's an essay by Heidegger, here's a poem or a letter by Rilke that's on the same plane that not one is illustrating the other, but they're in conversation. The same with um, segments from Deleuze and a bit partly from Derrida to sort of say, what are these people doing in the same space? So I'm not using the philosophy to illustrate the poetry, I'm not saying the poetry to challenge it, but say they are concerned with something similar, how experience is mediated by language, or actually how our experience doesn't become real to us until we can say it to ourselves. And they're, they're, all these writers are concerned with that. Okay, when you say that the experience is not real to us until we can put it into words, what do you mean specifically? It's not real to us because it's kind of hyper-real, surreal, unreal. It's experience that remains unconscious or unprocessed. Freud would say, who met Rilke actually in person, it's the unconscious which is structured like a language but doesn't yet have access to language. So an experience that you go through today and you can't Tell it, tell it to yourself. It'll be with you. It'll, it'll, you'll live through it. It'll be guiding you. It may resurface as a memory. It, something else may trigger it. But unless you can give it voice, a name, and meaning, and meaning is associated for us as human beings largely with language, not entirely. And this is what I'm interested in because, for example, other philosophies or Buddhism would say maybe you don't need language to have an experience, which we call in the Western tradition mystical. What do you make with that part? Poetry maybe finds a way to present such experiences without representing them, without turning them into a kind of cliche or image. Amongst the figures you've mentioned, I mean, it seems like a question that's maybe not, not fair, <laughs> because the next on the list is who's your favorite amongst these figures and why? No, right. I mean, you know, it, it sounds like what you, from what you've just said, I mean, it's not really a case of choosing one over the other, but rather they accompany each other to some degree. Right. So I sh I'll shift the question slightly. Do you have a favorite poem or letter from Rilke? And uh, is there a text by Heidegger or perhaps even an insight which is very, very important to you? There's probably my favorite is the, uh, the first of the Duino elegies which is, who would hear me if I cried out among the orders of angels? Um, it's the beginning of it. It's kind of a very early, 19, early 20th century poem. He says, who would hear me if I cried out? Meaning really, is there a voice? Is there somebody else in the universe who actually, who I can resonate with, who will hear me, who will perceive me? And he says, it won't be a human being, but I have to be heard in a way. It's kind of a very deep sort of existentialist need to be recognized on a profound level, not on a simplistic level. Mm. Heidegger has an interesting text um, called What Are Poets Good For? where he kind of ranks poems and poets and says, Hölderlin or Rilke, are they poets who disclose the world to us in a profound sense? Who don't just represent the world and, and come close to allowing language to disclose being, to actually generate something, let's say. And so this is a very interesting essay. Um, Heidegger is so problematic also because of all of his politics. Um, mm -hmm really despicable politics, so it's kind of a little harder to love Heidegger, I think. Um, and um, I love Deleuze, Gilles Deleuze, on the idea of minor literatures, of a kind of, he means in a minor key, literature played in a minor key as kind of a counterpoint to dominant strains, not minor in his inferior sense, but actually that which gives life its depth and resonance. So maybe those three texts, um, but I would put Rilke above if I had to go to my desert island it would be the, the Duino elegies and two of the letters, one letter I just translated hadn't been translated before. He writes a letter of condolence to a woman who nobody remembers this um, kind of a, an acquaintance of his. And he talks about how to deal with death. So that letter is 
actually I'm publishing this little book in September and the letters in that book and that letter has helped me personally a lot in the last 20 years. I'm going to sneak in one more question before we get to the last, let's say, most <laughs> pragmatic of them all. Um, yes. In reading the introductory page to the workshop, there was a, a sentence right at, right at the end, which I liked and I want to ask you about. So you said in this seminar, this, in this seminar, we will examine a mode of thinking that is not philosophical, but literary, which means that it immerses us via language into the core of being. It's a cheap shot, a cheap question, but yeah. well, what is this core of being? It's feeling fully alive. Yes. Which, which we so rarely do which is so strange. What's really strange if you think about it, we are not really awake. We are mostly not awake. We are, what you said earlier, distracted, or we're not awake in the Buddhist sense. You know, how much practice do you have to do to actually, like, do anything right? I mean, from washing the dishes to, you know, turning on your computer. Mostly we're just doing it, but we're doing uh, lots of other things. So for a moment to be in the moment, Anne Carson, the poet, wrote an amazing book on desire, and she said, it means for a moment to be truly in love and to think that time is on your side. To be in the moment which is for us eternal, which of course as human beings we have a hard time experiencing. So, so that's what I mean by that. And actually the, the, the Anne Carson quote is quite powerful and important. It's when all of the listeners will have a little glimpse of that when you are really in love with somebody, when you're in the first throes of kind of excitement and passion, which we shouldn't dismiss as insignificant. You're with that person you are completely present for a moment. That's what that would mean. Great. And the last question, where and when is the event taking place? So this is on, um, on Saturday, June 23rd, which is uh, the end of this week. It's in Philadelphia at the Ethical Society. It's at 1906, which is a nice year when Rilke was writing actively, 1906 Rittenhouse Square. And the Inside Seminar is from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. So it's Saturday, June 23rd from 10 to 3 in Rittenhouse Square. Perfect. Well, thanks for coming on, Ulrich, and sharing a bit of information with us. It was very interesting. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, have a great workshop. And uh, <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Good. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks for talking with me. Thanks. Thanks.